This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. What do we mean when we say living for others? For some, this is a real question. You read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what does it mean to live for others? Me, personally, I was not raised in a Christian home. There were Christians in my family, but not many. My family was very dysfunctional and dominated by alcohol, alcohol anger, and chaos. It was, a Darwinian, it was a Darwinian atmosphere, meaning the survival of the fittest. Emotionally, you were on your own. The bills got paid, and we coexisted under one roof. I was thankful we had a father who paid the bills. Family life, however, was not as terrible as one could imagine, but it was not an Aussie and Harriet existence at all. I was concentrated on me. Once I was able to move about, I moved about quite a bit. It would be nothing for me to be found several miles from home playing with some friends from school. I'd ride my bike over to see them, and then after dark, on a school night, I would ride my bike back, crossing a busy highway. I must have been 10 years old. I knew how to look out for myself, I thought. I grew up to be a selfish young man. And I had no concept about living for others. None. This greatly affected the formational years of my marriage. I had to learn a great deal real quick. There was really no sense of family unity, and my family relationships were tenuous and shallow. I lied, I stole, cheated, and I lived like I wanted to live. I was a wild child, a product of the 1960s culture. But then, Christ called my name. It was after I graduated from high school. I was attending college, and a fellow named Dave Sevier handed me a track, and he told me about Jesus Christ. I was interested, but I was not converted at that time. I did start looking for answers. I even went out and bought a Bible, and I began to read it. Eventually, I came to Christ at his beckoning. Truly broken over my sin, I repented, and I did believe. Now, contrary to what I hear so often, I did not have a life-changing moment. No lights came on and no band was playing, no excitement that was overwhelming. My mother had come to Christ a few years earlier, as did my sister. And I attribute my coming to Christ a great deal to the fact that my mother prayed for me and Christ answered her prayers. So at the age of 19, I was born again. Life did change dramatically. I could not explain the details back then, but now I understand a great deal. I've been given a new heart and a new life. My desires changed internally. However, I was still selfish, and I was ignorant. I was a, just a selfish young man. I was changed, but I was still clinging to what I knew. 
I had a hard time learning what it meant to consider others better than myself, or to look out for the interest of others. I still had the knack for putting myself first. God was a close second, and others, well, they were last. I read that we were to carry one another's burdens, and in this way we'd fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians. But I had difficulty understanding that. The idea of being a slave was repugnant to me. I was my own man, and I would serve nobody. But there was a twinge of conscience that I had never known before. This was something I needed to learn. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, Honor one another above yourselves. We who are strong should bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Please your neighbor and build him up for his own good. That was odd. It went contrary to everything I knew. But the more I read, the more I was not falling within these guidelines. My mind was molded in a different way. I had followed a different path for many years. When I came to Christ, I cut my hair and I began to attempt to dress better. I cleaned up my language and I stopped quite a bit of my sinful ways. And I was progressing in Christ. I was. My love for him was real and genuine. But I was so ignorant of the ways of God. How do I learn how to love others as Christ loved me? Well, that was a big question for me. One thing that troubled me was a constant awareness that I was being judged by my performance. The people in the church I was attending, my age, kept me at arm's length. I didn't fit in. My reputation was known and my clinging sins were obvious. I smoked constantly. So to avoid judgment and to be accepted, I did what I could to hide this. But this sense of judgment rode with me every day. Today I understand it was conviction of the Spirit of God. It was the work of sanctification. It was the maturation of a young heathen convert. Believe me, I repented daily. I was convinced that I had not been saved. So I prayed daily, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. But nothing really changed. I was already saved. But God bore with me. He was patient and more than kind in his dealings with me as I sat in his classroom, studying in the university of God himself. The way I was seeing it was that caring for my neighbor was at the heart of the gospel. But I was unable to perform this. I would help and I'd do what I could, but the attitude behind what I was doing was dead and lifeless. It was not loving. I was trying to see some redeemable quality within me, and I was discovering that there was nothing to find. I'd been told and convinced as a child that I was worthless and unwanted. It's not a, a sad lament or anything like that. That's not what I'm doing here. My father let me know that he was tired of dealing with me, and my self-esteem was non-existent. I felt awful, worthless. Deep inside, I wanted to prove that I had value to my father and to my friends and to God. This sense of worthlessness traveled with me, and this sense of value traveled with me for many, many years, ever since my childhood. It was something that I fought against. I had a deep sense of pride that I felt was not getting recognized. I had value, and I had something to offer, 
And this was boiling within me for many years. It was now coming to the surface in a way that I had never recognized before. It's like the pus from a festering boil. It finally comes out. A horrible description. But what better way can you say it? Reading in Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll find a description ascribed to Satan himself. He was proud. God had made him in such a way and placed him in such a position that he began to think of himself as something more than he was. He was proud of his beauty and he wanted to be recognized. He made his heart like God. He was beautiful and he had been appointed cherub. He was blameless in all of his ways. He was found to be unrighteous, though, because of his pride. He became filled with violence, and he sinned. His pride demanded more and more. His pride said that he was as good as God, the God who created him. As a matter of fact, he was probably better. His pride blinded him to reality and to facts. His desires to rise burned within him. He was better than others. He was better than anybody thought he was. And he was better particularly than God. This is what he thought. And this is what he sincerely feels and has felt for years. He was cast from heaven. He was cast from the mountain of God. His wisdom had been corrupted and he became a fool in his own imagination. And as one thinks in his heart, so is he. That's the way he is. He sought to raise up an army in order to, to defeat God and to displace God on the earth. But he cannot do this. His violence is terrible and his lust for power and position is insatiable. The problem is he's created an army that has the same desire. That's an army that sees itself as being better than Satan himself. His soldiers all want to be higher than God and consequently higher than Satan. Well, how did this happen? Well, they're being just like their leader. They'll submit to no one, and they'll bow before no other gods, not even Satan. Why? Because they know that deep within themselves, they are of great value, and they need to show the world. Satan has said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. Donald Barnhouse says this about Satan in his book, The Invisible War. Back in the story of Abram, we have the record of an incident revealing the inwardness of the name, the Most High. Abram was returning home after the battle with the kings and the deliverance of Lot. We read that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. That's in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 19. Now here's the key to the pride of Satan. God is revealed as El Elyon, the Most High God. And in his character, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is what Lucifer wants to be. His rebellion was not a request for God to move over so that he might share the throne. It was a thrust at God himself. It was an attempt to put God out so that he, Satan, might take his place as the possessor of the heavens and the earth. Is this plan working? It sure looks like it might be today, doesn't it? 
In early days as a Christian, it was so prevalent. Satan is bringing and has brought misery and torment to millions upon millions upon millions of people worldwide. His demons are busily at work. Satan, you see, is a created being, so he can't be in more than one place at one time. So he has to use his followers, those who fell from heaven with him. The fundamental good of creation is found, though, in fellowship with God, communion with El Elyon, the Most High God. Satan wants that adulation. He wants his value to be known, and he wants everybody to see just how good and great he is. The character trait to recognize is that while men follow hard after the ways of Satan, even when they're sold out completely to his ideas, they're still wretched and tormented individuals. Their master, Satan himself, torments them with no joy or peace. I was learning this as his principles that I had incorporated into my life since I was a small child. They were finally coming to the surface. And I was seeing just how wretched and wicked I truly was. And I was tormented with this stuff. I was absolutely miserable. There were times of exquisite joy when I knew I was loved by God and I was so thankful. Yet there was this thing within me, this thing within me that was tormenting me. I was looking at the law and the law was condemning me daily. I was, as, I was the blind man touched by Christ. I saw men walking as trees, but I had been touched by Christ. And praise be to God, Jesus finished the work, finished the work, and is finishing the work. Faithful is he to complete what he's begun, right? He opened my eyes in such a way that these things now have not troubled me for quite some time. I'm free from the law. Now I know what to do. And I wanted to be good, but still I had struggles to find within myself the practice that I needed to do. The good things that I wanted to do, I just didn't do. I was and am unable to do good. It's not within me. I can honestly agree with the law of God now. I understand that my value is in and because of Christ himself. He's my hope and my salvation. The more I look inside and ask myself, how do I love people? The more condemned I feel. But Christ has set me free from the law that brings nothing from condemnation. I'm a sinner. And apart from Christ, I always have been and always will be. These things will always war within us. The ideas and the thoughts. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And some people can tell you, you don't always have to sin. Well, okay, stop sinning and prove that guy wrong, huh? Let me see somebody stop sinning. In my flesh, there dwells no good thing. There are lies within the flesh. And there are the temptations of Satan. He tempts the flesh. But there's an alternative being presented in Scripture. How do I learn to live for others? That's the question here. Well, you ask yourself, who are you learning from? Satan's a liar, a deceiver, and a destroyer. He has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to destroy you. But this does not need to be. It is truth that teaches us how to live and how to live for others. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So who is teaching you? Where are you looking to find the answers? Look to Jesus. In Philippians 2 here, instead of exalting himself, 
It says he emptied himself of all pride and self-adulation. He did not make himself out to be something. He was God of all creation, but he didn't boast about it. He took on the nature of a servant, a slave. He was God, fully God in every respect, yet he became a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Now, why did he do that? For personal gain? No, he did that for me. All for love's sake, he became poor. The cross is not some soothing religious symbol that we wear around our necks. It was the cruelest means of suffering in Christ's day. Christ led the disciples into Jerusalem. He stopped and he told them what he was about to do and what was about to happen. And he endured those dreadful things. He was whipped. His back was shredded. He had his beard torn out. He had a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. But he did not the right to himself. But why? For you. He could have considered just who he was and insisted on the proper recognition. He could have shown the world his true value. He could have snapped his fingers and stopped every bit of this. But he didn't. He showed us, by example, how to live for others. He teaches us, by example, how to live for others. How to give beyond measure. How to bear with the weaknesses of others. How to be patient and kind when you have every right to rebel and shout out. How to love when others are violent and doing physical harm. He didn't open his mouth. The Bible says he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. The only time he opened his mouth was to cry out in his pain. And then he said, it's finished. When they laid him down, he watched as they nailed his hands to the cross. He cried a cry that was heard throughout the halls of heaven. But he determined to do these things for you and for me. He died for my sins so that I would not have to. You see what living for others means? I have a lot to learn. The problem is we always tend to choose for ourselves, even when it comes to danger and doing without, certainly we choose for ourselves. And even in the most sanctified and sanctimonious ways, we always tend to see the Lord leading us to do something for ourselves. We'll always exercise what we've been taught since birth, our human rights, our freedom, our self-preservation, equity. Flesh will always elect flesh to be the leader. The first step in learning to live for others is to recognize basic truth. We are a proud people. This is the foundation of sin. I think I'm right. I'm the most high in my life. But why are we proud? We belittle God. We've made God to be a manageable being and controllable. We believed a lie. We have a wrong perception about God and a wrong perception about ourselves. To see God correctly, you will see yourself in contrast. And before God, we're worthless. We're filled with sin. Peter, the rock, told Jesus to get away from him, for he was a sinful man. Isaiah, when he saw God, said, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The first step in living for others is to recognize who God is and to understand who he is. 
The second step is to understand who you are and what you are. The third step is an imperative as well, one that we tend to neglect the most. Daily fellowship with Christ. Christ is the source of our lives. We must stay close to the source if we're to learn. He teaches us how to give and how to be and how to be what we're meant to be. And you must be convinced of this. Without him, you can't do anything. But in Christ and through Christ, I can do everything that he calls me to do. He will give me the strength to be what I should be and to do what I should do. He gives us the understanding, the strength, and the ability. Watchman Nee, who you may have heard of, was a Chinese evangelist. And he tells the story of a Christian he once knew in China. This guy was a poor rice farmer and lived up high up in a mountain. And every day he would pump water into the patties of new rice. And every morning he returned to find that the neighbor who lived down the hill from him would open up the dikes surrounding the Christian's field and let the water fill his own dikes. For a while, the Christian ignored the injustice, but at last, he got desperate. He met and he prayed with other Christians, and he came up with a solution. The next day, the Christian farmer rose early in the morning, earlier than usual, and he filled his, neighbor, his neighbor's fields with water. Then he filled his own. Watchman details how the neighbor subsequently became a Christian. His unbelief was overcome by a genuine demonstration of the Christian humility and Christ-like character. Can you live for others? Yes, you can. Will you live for others? That's the question. It's not only possible, but it also is an important aspect to walking on this earth as a Christian. If we don't know how to live for others, we know who should, we should ask. And if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally, and he won't chasten you for asking. When you ask, expect an answer. We thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.